turn with me to James chapter 4. James 4, verses 7 through 10 is where we are this morning. Before we read, just to try to set the context, uh, remember last week we were in verses 4 through 6 where James is confronting us with the reality, the unpleasant reality, that friendship with the world is hostility to God. And that our friendliness with the world, as tame as what that may sound, actually amounts to spiritual adultery. So if you can remember the very, I believe it was the very first point from JT's uh, sermon last week, friendship with the world is spiritual adultery of which we are all guilty. That was verses 4 through 6, identifying the sickness or the problem 7 through 10, where we are this morning, addresses the remedy or the solution to that spiritual adultery. Listen then and hear what the Lord says. James 4, verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, this is your word to us, and we ask that you would be good and faithful to cause us to see ourselves in the light of your word. That no thought or motive or impulse would go hidden but that your word which proceeds from your mouth would accomplish the work that you intend it to accomplish in your people for our good, for our growth in Christ-likeness, and for our joy in the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ by your Spirit. Be with us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So James 4, 7 through 10 is the cure for spiritual adultery. We need to say up front that if you don't recognize yourself in verses 4 through 6, your friendliness, your flirting, your playing games with the world, the philosophies of this age, the habits, the mindsets, the affections, right? if you don't see and recognize that all of us are guilty of that, in small ways and in big ways, verses 7 through 10 will mean absolutely nothing to you. If you are never tempted to play nice with the world, to compromise your faith, to sacrifice your call to holiness and sanctification, if that's not you, you have permission to get up right now and to leave and to go get lunch early. For everyone else, sit down and hear what the Lord says. 
A couple things that we might say before we get into the details or the particulars of this passage. Ultimately, if you take verses 7 through 10 and you try to sum it up, the remedy to spiritual adultery is given right up front in the very first line. It's in submitting to the Lord. I think that what happens in the verses that follow is that everything else that you have in verses 7 through 10 essentially goes to say or show or explain some aspect or component of what it means to submit to God. All right, but, but again, before we get there, or no, let me, let me go ahead and give you what, we're, what you're going to see, and then we'll come back to a couple preliminary observations. That being said, if submitting to God is the way that you fight spiritual adultery, that is to say, if you're using the, the marriage analogy, right, the spouse who wanders or strays to entertain attention or to satisfy sinful affections or desires with another person, the only way that that can be remedied is if that person returns to be reconciled to their spouse. Similarly, the only way that spiritual adultery can be resolved is for wandering people to return to the Lord and to submit themselves under his lordship and under his authority for their good. Three things, then, in the following verses entail what that submission involves. It involves three things, and we'll sum it up this way. Number one, it involves resisting, namely resisting the devil. Number two, submission means drawing near to God. And number three, submission means repentance. Anyone who would say that they are in submission or are submitting themselves to God, these three elements will be active or evident in their life. They resist, they draw near, they repent. Now, before we get into those details, let me just make a couple of observations. Number one, even a casual reading of verses 7 through 10 draw attention to the fact that that this small tight little passage is filled with imperatives that is with commands some 10 commands occur in verses 7 through 10 which means at the very least that when we see and we recognize our tendency to be unfaithful to the lord when we see and we recognize areas in which we have been unfaithful and are unfaithful now, what the Lord calls his people to do is to respond and react, to do something. There is so much in the Christian world today that is just cheap spiritual therapy. Too many people who name the name of Christ are more interested to complain about their sin rather than killing it. We get comfortable living as captives to sin rather than fighting to maintain the freedom that God has given us in Christ. We wallow in self-pity 
as hapless victims when we ought to be making war against sin. Don't submit to being a victim to your sin. Don't bend the knee to your flesh. You are not children of darkness. You're children of light. Live like it. You say, well, Mary, that's easy for some to say because of certain advantages that they have. They had an upbringing. They've been well-versed in the scriptures. They have good habits. They write so on and so forth. Or you say, well, that's easy to say, but impossible to put into action because of the fact that my sin just has too big of a hold on my life. I'm just too easily led astray and wayward. I can't do what the Lord is calling me to do in verses 7 through 10. Don't buy that lie. Notice that verse 7 starts off with therefore. Submit therefore to God. What is the connection between verse 7 and the preceding verse? Verse 6 says, He gives a greater grace. God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, verse 7, submit to God. You have God's grace. What you and I are being called to do in verses 7 through 10, we are not being told to do in our own effort or in our own strength or in our own wisdom. But we are being told that as we obey these commands, that the grace of God will prove itself to be sufficient to enable us to do what God commands us to do. Give what you command and command what you will. God has given his people all that they need for life and godliness. God has given to his people grace upon grace in the person of Jesus Christ and by the power of his spirit so that you can do what he is instructing you to do as you fight sin and waywardness and unfaithfulness. You can do this because of God's grace which is at work in you. You can submit to God. You can remain faithful to the Lord who bought you and saved you. His grace is sufficient for you. Do you believe that? Submit to God, which means that your submission will, in the first instance, look like resistance. It will look like resisting the devil. So verse 7, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If you think or claim that you are walking in right fellowship and relationship with God, and yet there is no evidence of any struggle or resistance against the powers of this age 
the pull of your flesh, if there is no evidence of a fight or a struggle, I don't really know if you truly have submitted yourself to God. Let's go back and use the marriage analogy again. Adultery. If I were to say that I am faithful to my wife, that I have submitted myself to the bounds, the bonds of marriage, but that faithfulness to my wife, that living out the obligations and responsibilities of my marital vows only happens one night a week when I take my wife out to dinner, is that faithfulness to my wife? If I entertain propositions from other people, if I look longingly after other women, if I engage in sexual immorality six other days out of the week, but one day out of the week I give and devote to my wife, is that submitting myself to the bonds of marriage? No. It makes a mockery of marriage. If your idea of being submissive, of submitting to God and to his rightful rule, his benevolent grace in your life, consists of little more than giving an hour or two on Sunday morning, but then the rest of the week you get to live how you want, with whom you want, doing whatever you want, that is not submitting to God. There is not one square inch of your life or mine, one moment of the day, one impulse of the heart or thought of the mind that the Lord does not look at and say, that's mine. And to neglect that and to portion out paltry periods of time an hour here in the morning, a couple hours on Sunday, maybe a midweek if we're super spiritual, Wednesday night. And to think that that is what it means to walk in submission. Meanwhile, we bend over and just play dead when the devil comes and tempts us and we play with sin. That is not submitting to God. You can resist the temptation that comes your way. In Luke 4, you don't need to turn there now, but in Luke 4, after Jesus has presented himself for public ministry, he's baptized by John. The Spirit descends and takes up residence with Jesus. The next thing that happens in the narrative, in the story, is what we're told in Luke 4.1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Did Jesus resist the devil? Yes. Was Jesus victorious over 
temptation. Yes. How was he victorious? How did he withstand the temptation, the assaults of his enemy? How did he do it? He did it two ways. Number one, he did it in the power of the Spirit. And he did it according to the truth of God's Word. If you have been raised to new life in Christ, both of those gifts of grace are yours in full. The same Spirit that led Jesus successfully through his time of temptation in the wilderness is the same Spirit that dwells in you to make you victorious over the temptation and the pull and the desires of your flesh, of the world, of the devil. The same word that Jesus used to combat temptation, to combat false ideas and notions, is the same word that you have at your fingertips Multiple copies are probably laying around your house. You carry the entire Word of God on a magical device that you put into your pocket or your purse. You carry it with you wherever you go, and all of that has been given to you as a gift so that you would not be defeated and preyed upon by your enemy. Are you resisting your enemy, are you submitting to God? One other place. Keep your place here in James and turn back to Ephesians chapter 6. Paul uses similar language or gets along the same ideas but in a slightly different way. Ephesians 6, start with me at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to, notice, resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. If you have been saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you claim the salvation of God by Christ through the power of His Spirit, Paul is telling you and telling me that we have all that we need in order to resist and stand firm when we are attacked and assailed by doubts, by temptation, by selfish desires. We are fully equipped to meet the enemy in spiritual battle. You can resist by God's grace. Number two, submission is not merely or is not only resisting, it's also drawing near. So back in James 4, verse 8, 
draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I wonder how often, I wonder how often one of the reasons why we remain unfaithful is because we buy the lie that we have strayed too far. We've sinned too long. We've dug a hole too deep. Listen, brothers and sisters, the grace of God in Jesus Christ is so deep and so rich that so long as you draw breath, there is never a too far or a too long or a too deep. In Malachi 3.7, this is the Lord speaking to his people. He says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. Do you hear what the Lord is saying there? From the days of your fathers, for generations, for hundreds and hundreds of years, you have not walked faithfully with me. And yet, what does he say in the very next breath? Return. To the prodigal who has run so far that he no longer can see his loving father. The father sees you. To the one who has strayed and wandered from his creator, from his king, from a faithful Lord and Savior, the grace of God abounds where sin has multiplied. Where sin increased, grace abounded even more. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Start with me at verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Pause right there for a moment. That living and active word that lays you bare, that exposes you, that is James 4, 1 through 6. It's God's word exposing you to the fact that all of your conflicts ultimately start because of your evil desires. 
It is God's word exposing the fact that no matter how you may try to dress it up, no matter how pretty you try to make it, your attempt to keep one foot in good standing with God and one foot in good standing with the world is nothing less than adultery. It is laying you bare. Even the thoughts and the impulses of your heart that you don't even detect yourself, God even sees and knows that. What are you going to do? You going to take all that filth to God? Or are you going to stay where you are? You're going to try to fix it yourself, clean yourself up before you go to God, or are you going to continue to read in Hebrews chapter 4? Verse 14. Therefore, therefore, because the word of God lays us bare, exposes our guilt and our sin, because the word of God is able to identify and point out the guilt of even the momentary impulses of our hearts. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Draw near to God, James says, and he will draw near to you. It's a fearful thing for sinners to draw near to a holy God unless sinners are able to draw near to a holy God through the holiness and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then what I find is that even in my worst moments, that I would not share with another soul on this earth with those thoughts and impulses that course through my mind and my heart when I am laid bare and exposed for the sinner that I am look to Christ and I see the one who is able to help I see the one who has opened up a way for sinful people to draw near to a holy God and as I approach a holy God through the holiness of Christ, what I find is not a God seated on a throne 
of judgment waiting to condemn me. I find God seated on his throne, which is a throne of grace to me. It is help for a weak, pitiful man who would not last a moment were it not for his grace upholding me. And every day, every moment, the call remains the same. Come. Draw near to me and find that I am gracious and merciful, slow to anger, that I forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin because I have not left sin unpunished but have meted out that punishment on my son Jesus Christ the righteous one so that you now may enter in number three repent submitting to God means resisting our enemy. It means drawing near. And it, mean, and it means repenting. Look with me at verse 8. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. The psalmist asks in Psalm 24, Who may ascend, who may go up to the hill of the Lord and stand in his presence? One of the answers is, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Notice here that this idea of repentance, what repentance truly involves, is both external and internal. Right? Cleansing your hands means that what your hands have been in that has dirtied them, that sin that you have been playing with and engaging in and participating in, you wash your hands of that. You back away from it. You no longer dirty yourself with that sin. It matters what you do with your time, with your body, with your mind. But consider, too, that it's not merely that you clean your hands as if it's just a simple matter of external observance, as long as I'm respectable in the community, as long as they don't see or hear anything that is particularly heinous, all is well. No. Clean your hands and purify your heart. God is intending to clean all of you. 
what you do, what you think, what you love, what you long for, what you think about, what you desire, what you aspire to, what you daydream about, what you imagine, that, even that is part of what it means to have your heart purified, the very core of your being is being made pure just as he is pure. Men and women, if you're doing all of the good works, all of the charitable acts, if you're memorizing scripture, but your heart is a cesspool because of what you allow yourself to think about or to fantasize about, you need to repent. That sin is corrupting you. And so long as you are entertaining sin, even in the innermost part of your being, you are not truly submitting to God. Clean your hands and purify your heart. Stop doing sin and stop loving the world. And then notice after that, he says in verse 9, Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Why does he say that? Anyone like being miserable? Anyone enjoy grief and sorrow? This is not intuitive. This is not natural. None of us want to be miserable. None of us want to mourn. None of us want to weep. And yet Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Do you ever get upset about your sin? Right, there, there are probably two competing errors here. One is that you just wallow in sin and you never war against it. Right? You just look for affirmation so that you can be, be comfortable in this little gutter or this trench of sin that you wallow in day in and day out. The other, the other error is just to say, with some sort of false sense of assurance or security, that your sin just doesn't matter. It doesn't bother you. You're comfortable with it. Are you comfortable with your sin? Does it bother you? Does it grieve you when you sin? And I'm not even talking about do you grieve over your sin in the sense that do you grieve or mourn when you're caught in your sin? What if you were never caught? Would you still mourn and sorrow over your sin even if no one else knew about it? If there's no sense in which you feel some sadness or some pull 
or some dejection over the sin that you commit, you need to examine your heart. Now listen, please don't misunderstand, because here's, here's one of the pitfalls that we can easily fall into. The truth of the matter is, is that more often than not, our hearts are far too weak. Right? They are not where they ought to be. I, I suspect, I don't know this for certain, but I suspect that it's not an accident that James mentions first cleaning your hands and purifying your heart before he mentions mourning and sorrow. Here's why. Sometimes we have grown so accustomed with our sin that we cannot even grieve over sin the way that we ought to. We've grown accustomed to it far too long. We actually may even prize and treasure it. If your heart has been numbed and dulled because of sin, because you've been eating junk food and your heart just is not healthy anymore, what, what will you do? Will you just sit around and wait for magically your heart to restore itself? Will you wait until you feel like being holy and then set about holiness? I don't think that's going to work. Rather, I think the pattern that you have here in Scripture is simply this. Even when I know that my heart is dull, that it's not grieving and mourning over sin the way that it ought to, I still know, even if just intellectually, I still know the sin that I need to abstain from. I still know that is the direction of sin, this is the direction of holiness. So at least do what you know. At least get your hands out of the sin. At least turn away from looking at it and from gazing at it. And then ask, plead with the Lord to grow your heart in His grace so that your heart will catch up with your habits. You may find that in your pursuit of righteousness, although you are not particularly excited about, it, excited about it in the beginning, that the more that you do righteousness, even if it's just simply out of sheer obedience, because that's what God calls you to do, you may find that by obeying God's word, God rewards you with causing your heart to begin to love the very obedience that he's called you to. And that the longer you obey, the more consistent you are in following God's instructions in his word, that one day you begin to notice that the things that once entertained me are not nearly as entertaining anymore. I'm actually starting to get used to not having those things anymore. In fact, I think I actually don't want that anymore. I think I would rather have this other stuff, this other holiness that I've begun to taste and enjoy. Make the habit and ask God to cause your heart to catch up with that. Even if you find that your heart does not naturally grieve and mourn over sin the way that it should. 
And then finally, James comes down in verse 10 and says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Very similar to what he says at the very beginning in verse 7. If the solution to the sickness of spiritual adultery is submitting to the Lord. James can end on a similar note and say that if it's God's grace that enables us to submit, if it's his grace that enables us to resist and draw near and repent, then humble yourself. It's the humble, the people who know that they're weak, who don't try to hide their weakness, who don't try to cover their sin. It's the one who goes to the Lord in humility, asking for grace and mercy, who gets it. The longer that you try to do this under your own power, the more frustrated you will become, the more difficult you will find it is to enjoy fellowship with your creator and with your king. It's actually by making yourself low that you experience the heights of your relationship with God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that your grace has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Your grace has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. Your grace has been secured and purchased by his death and resurrection. And by your spirit that dwells within us, your grace is instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. By your grace, you continue to call wayward children back to yourself. By your grace, you give us the ability to return, to repent, to resist. Father, I would ask that if there is anyone here today, any son or daughter, who is comfortable with their sin, that you would make them uncomfortable that they would not be able to rest until they repent of their sin and turn to you. I pray, Father, that if there is anyone here who has been wrestling with sin in their own power, that they would turn and realize that it's only through the grace of God in Jesus Christ, by the power of your Spirit, that any of us are able to fight, let alone to conquer sin. We praise you and thank you for your grace. Help us to humble ourselves as we see our need for your grace on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. Keep us faithful. Draw us in our hearts and minds to you. Make us more like Christ, we ask. And it's in his name that we pray all of this. Amen.